They tell the story of a man who walks into a bar one evening, orders a drink, makes a toast, downs the drink, and then takes the glass and throws it right at the bartender, almost damaging him very badly. What's going on? What are you doing? The bartender asks the man. He says, oh, I'm so sorry. I just have this uncontrollable anger in me. And when it flares up, it just takes me over. It overwhelms me. I can't control it. I'm so embarrassed with myself. I'm so humiliated. Please forgive me. The man says, okay, I forgive you this time. The guy comes back the second night, next night. Orders a glass, orders a drink. Lechayim downs it. And guess what? He hurls it on the people sitting in the bar. What's going on again? And the man again apologizes. I'm so embarrassed. I am so humiliated with myself. I have this terrible problem, this terrible urge. I don't know what to do. I've inherited it from my mother and my grandmother and my great-grandmother for many generations. Please forgive me. The man says, okay, I forgive you. But if you don't want me to call the police, you promise me, go to therapy. You go to therapy, I'll be fine. The man says, I commit myself, I hate myself for what I'm doing, I'm going to go to therapy. Next night he doesn't show up, eight months he's gone. After eight months, he's back in the bar. Orders a drink, makes a toast, drinks it, takes the glass, and throws it right at the bartender. What's going on, the bartender asks him. I thought you promised that you're going to go to therapy. He says, sir, I went to therapy and now I'm not embarrassed anymore. This anecdote represents a sentiment or trend which we want to address this evening. You know, the Torah portion of Mishpatim in the book of Exodus in the book of Shmos, includes much of what can be called the Torah's civil code. Laws governing criminal assault, theft, damages, loans, rentals, employer-employee relations. But as the Midrashic, Kabbalistic, and Hasidic masters have always reminded us, everything in Torah has both a body and a soul, a pragmatic, physical, technical explanation, and also a metaphysical, spiritual, and transcendental symbolism. The most lofty or esoteric concept in Judaism has a practical application. The most technical law in the Torah has a spiritual dimension. And tonight, we want to take one such civil law, in the portion of Mishpatim, and explore it not only from the physical, literal meaning and explanation, but also from its spiritual uh, perspective, thus demonstrating the various dimensions existing in one particular law in the Hebrew Bible. There is a Talmudic tractate, Babakama which means the first gate, dealing with civil law, civil damages. The opening of this tractate, the first Mishnah of Baba Kama, reads like this, and it's the first source in your curriculum. You can open up your curriculums right here on the bottom of the video and print it out or just look at it. And we'll read inside the opening Mishnah of tractate Baba Kama. Arba Avais Nezikin. The principal father of damages are four. The ox, the pit, the human being, and the fire. The Mishnah is telling us here that there are four primary classes of damages. The ox again, the pit, the human being, and the fire. What does this mean? These describe four basic categories of damages for which a human being is responsible. The first is the ox, which includes all animals. These are the damages caused by a person's animal which he or she owns, or by other possessions. So, 
If my ox gores my neighbor's cow. If my goat eats my neighbor's tomato plants. If my dog bites the mailman. If my sheep tramples and breaks my neighbor's vessels. These are examples of the prototype shur, the ox. The second category is bur, the pit. This is passive damage, passive damage, caused by a person's criminal negligence. For example, I dig a hole in the middle of the street and an animal falls in and is killed. Or a person falls and breaks his or her leg. I am responsible for that damage. This is the second category, boy, the pit. The third is mava, the human being. Now there is an argument in the Talmud and Baba Kama, page 3, what mava is. We're following now the opinion, the perspective of Rav. Mava is Adam. It's the damage inflicted by a human being. Active human inflicted damages. You take your fist and you break a thousand dollar worth lamp of another person. You take your fist and you break the only nose on the face of another person. Or any other damage inflicted by the person directly. This is the third category, Mava. Finally, the fourth, Hever, Fire. Damages arising from the failure to control potentially damaging forces that a person is responsible to control. For example, you're burning the garbage in your backyard. You're making a bonfire in your backyard. These are legally permissible actions. But then it spreads, the fire spreads to your neighbor's property. You are then responsible for the damage, or I am responsible for the damage. This is the fourth category, hever. Hashoir, haboir, hamavevahever. The ox, the pit, the human being, and the fire. And the Mishnah continues back in the curriculum. The aspects of the ox are not like the aspects of the man, of the human being damaging, nor are those of the human being like those of the ox. They have different properties. Nor are the aspects of either of them, the damages inflicted by the ox or by the human being which are alive, the same as the aspects of the fire which is not alive. Fire is not a living creature. Nor are the aspects of any of these, the ox, the human being with a fire, which are mobile and they damage that way, like the pit which is stationary and does damage through passive, through a passive fashion. But the feature common to all of them is shedarkan lahazik. They are prone to doing damage. And one is therefore responsible for them. Whether it's my animal, whether it's my fire, whether it's myself, or whether it's my pit, I am responsible for them and thus the damages that are inflicted as a result of any of these four. Now, in many Midrashic works and books and Kabbalistic literature and Midrashic literature, these four prototypes of damage are seen also as symbolic of various allegorical ideas. For example, in the Zohar, in the portion of Mishpatim, they're associated with the four famous faces in the chariot, in Ezekiel's vision of the Merkava, the face of the human being, the face of the ox, the face of the eagle, and the face of the lion. In the Alshech, in the commentator by the 16th century, mystic of Tzifas, Tzifad, Rabbi Moshe Alshech, he sees historically that these four correspond to four great empires, Babylonia, Persia, Greek, and Rome. Babylonia represented by the ox, Persia by the pit, the Greek empire by the human mava, and the Roman Empire by the fire. In the book of Asara Mamores, authored by the Kabbalist Rabbi Menachem Azaria of Fanu of Italy, 
in the Shalosh, Neiluchos Abriz by Rabbi Yeshaya Horowitz, in the Chsam Sofer, Rabbi Moshe Schreiber, Rabbi Moshe Sofer, in his commentary in the beginning to Tractate Babakama, they see the association with a city mentioned in the Hebrew Bible, one of the cities in the Transjordan, mentioned in the Book of Numbers in the portion of Matos, Sivma. Sivma. Sin Veiz Memhe, an acronym of Shur, Boir, Mave, and Hever. But this evening we will address these four classic prototypes of damages from a psychological point of view. So when we have the four prototypes of damages, of damagers, they also describe four sources of psychological and spiritually damaging phenomena. Four sources from which stem all of the problems. These four, as the Talmud explains, have many offspring. They have many branches and sub-branches falling into the four categories, one of the four categories. But there are only four Avais Nizik, and there are only four fathers, four prototypes of damagers. And from these four prototypes stem all different categories of damage which comes from one person or a person's possessions towards another person and his or her possessions. So we have four classical prototypes, causes, of all psychological damage which comes from a person. Which means four prototypes which turn the person into a force for damage for himself or herself and for his or her environment. Number one is the shayr, the ox. This is the human being saying, I am an ox. I am a behemoth, which means I am an animal. Why shouldn't I do whatever I want? After all, if I want it, it means that there is something inside of me telling me to want it. Is that wrong? I'm just being me. Isn't it natural for me to be me? Do you want me to repress myself? Do you want me to be unfaithful to myself? Do you want me to lie? Do you want me to be a hypocrite? I am a shur. I am a behemoth. I am an animal. These are my instincts. These are my cravings. You cannot demand from me to be something which is alien to me, which is unnatural to me. That would be unhealthy, counterproductive. It would create an neurosis in me. I would become a neurotic. I'll become a psychotic. You know, they say there are three types of people. There's the neurotic, there's the psychotic, and there's the psychiatrist. The neurotic is the guy who builds castles in the air. The psychotic is the guy who lives in the castles. The psychiatrist collects the rent from both. So do you really want me to build castles in the air and to become a person who was unnatural to my instincts? I am a shayr. This is my composition. Of course, in today's world, influenced profoundly by Darwinism and the theory of evolutionary psychology, it is increasingly easy for a person to view himself or herself as nothing but a biologically developed ape. So for me to achieve happiness and satisfaction, I achieve it the same way animals do, purely through self-gratification and self-indulgence. You come to me and you ask of me to cultivate an ethical or moral sensibility, to cultivate my yearning for transcendence, for spirituality. This is not me. I am not a spiritual person. I am not a transcendental person. I am an animal. This is my authentic self. I must remain true to myself. I am not holy, I am not sacred, I am not heavenly. I have cravings and I'm not ready to fool myself all of my life. Believing, creating castles in the air, creating a substitute for my real personality. Knowing full well that I am a behemoth, I'm an animal. And as we know, this idea has been preached and written by some of the great philosophers, especially in the modern era. And it reminds me of a story. It's a story that used to be told by the famous preacher in Jerusalem, a magid in Jerusalem, Rabbi Shalom Mordechai Shvadron of blessed memory, who told many lovely stories and once on a visit to, during a visit to New York shared the following episode. And he would tell his stories with a unique 
Jerusalem melody, uh, a melody of old preachers and Magidim. He said, a yeshiva student once came to see me. He told a story in Yiddish. A yeshiva bacher, a yeshiva student came to see me. And he began complaining about the fact that he's a human being and how many limitations and impositions he has because he's a human being. He tells me, he says, Rav Shvadron, each morning I must wake up and get dressed. When I want to tend to my needs, I must go to the bathroom. When I eat, I must use a fork and a knife and a spoon. As a Jew, I have various responsibilities, various mitzvahs. I am so envious of the animal. I look at the bull, I look at the cow. What a free life. Nor do they have to get up at any specific time, nor do they have to get dressed, nor do they have to go use the bathroom, nor do they have to use cutlery, nor do they have any obligations or responsibilities whatsoever. They are absolutely free, liberated of all constraints, of all limitations, of all barriers. And he says, the yeshiva student begins crying, lifts his eyes to heaven and says, Ribai Naishalayla, Master of the Universe. Why did you create me as a human being? Why did you not create me as a behemoth, as an animal? And he says, I'm watching this boy weeping, lamenting his horrible fate of being a human and not being an animal. So I told him, Bacher, Bacher, Du hast nicht was zu weinen, du bist a behemoth. I told him, my dear student, you have no reason to weep. You are a behemoth. You are like an animal. So this is the first prototype of Arba Avais Nezikin, of where the person absolves himself or herself from responsibility, saying, this is who I am, excuse. This is how God created me or how evolution developed me. The second source of damage is the boy, the pit. This is when the human being feels that he or she is an empty pit, devoid of substance. I have no reality. I don't believe in myself. I don't feel that I have any power. I feel that I am worthless. I'm insignificant. I'm a shmata. When you look into me, what do you find? You find empty, hollow space, a pit in the ground. This, of course, can lead to a terrible sense of emptiness, of hollowness, and thus can lead to dejection, melancholy, various forms of depression. It can lead to paralysis and thus self-destructiveness. One looks deep into himself or herself and concludes... I feel that I am ultimately worthless. There is nothing I envision for myself, nothing worthwhile I am interested in, nothing to dream about or live for. I have no passion empowering every day and every moment of my life. I am nothing and therefore I am irrelevant. My actions and speech, thoughts, ideas cannot help or harm, build or destroy, compliment or insult. If I consider myself as meaningless and unimportant, why should anybody else think otherwise? Now sometimes people think that their sense of inner inadequacy or worthlessness represents their deep sensitivity, humility, vulnerability. But the Mishnah tells us here that it's an avais nezikim. It's a primary cause of damage. Because when I feel that I'm a shmata, I'm worthless, nothing is relevant. And I'm then prone to become a source of damage to myself and to other people. Besides not being productive and accomplishing what I am ought to accomplish in life, I can also become a source of damage. Now there's something interesting. According to the Talmudic law, according to Torah law, the pit must be ten tfachim deep, ten cubits, ten handbreadths deep, which is approximately between 32 or 38 and 38 inches. There are two opinions, but approximately between 32 and 38 inches. Only then is the pit considered to be dangerous and harmful. What does this represent psychologically? It means if you have a little pit in you, if you feel a little emptiness in you, 
That's natural. Every person from time to time has a certain sense of, of worthlessness. But once it becomes deep, once it becomes entrenched in your psyche, once it's 32 inches deep in your psychological structure, now it's a source of damage for yourself and for the people around you. Another interesting point. If you look in your curriculum, you'll see the Talmud and Babakama explains the verse in Mishpatim which reads, When a person opens a pit, if a person digs a pit, and does not cover the pit, and a bull or a donkey fall into the pit, the one who created the hazard is responsible to pay. And the Talmud says, Why a bull or a donkey? Any animal. And the Talmud explains, What the Bible is telling us here is, you're responsible for a bull, but not for a human being who falls into the pit. You're responsible for a donkey, but you're not liable for kalim, for utensils which fall into the pit and break. As the Talmud explains, if an animal, if a human being falls into the pit and is damaged, breaks a leg, breaks an arm, then you are responsible to pay. But here on earth, for the death of a human being, the person is not liable. Here on earth. Heavenly court is a different calculation, but here on earth, he or she is not liable to pay. Why not? The Meshechachma, the commentary on Chumash from Rabbi Meir Simcha Hakoyin, the rabbi of Dvinsk, the author of Er Sameach, explains and says that a human being is responsible for himself. When you're walking in the street, when you're walking in the marketplace, you ought to look where you're going. And therefore, the person who dug the pit, although he did something wrong, he's not responsible for the human being's death who fell into the pit. The same is true with vessels. Vessels don't have a way of arriving into a pit. So therefore, you're not responsible for the vessels which fell into the pit because your hazard did not apply to vessels because vessels are immobile. Only an animal which doesn't have the mindfulness and the consciousness of the human being, which walks around in a public thoroughfare, in a public street, and the animal falls in, now you are responsible. Whether the animal breaks a limb, whether the animal dies, you are fully responsible. For a human being who falls in, the human being gets damaged, you're responsible, but for the human being's death, such a type of fall. The person who dug the pit is not responsible in an earthy court to pay the various payments that exist in other liabilities discussed in the book of Mishpatim and the Talmud Babakama. What does this represent psychologically? If I am a human being, if I am an Adam, and I fall into your pit, I fall into your depression, then I am responsible. If I get caught up in somebody else's misery, in somebody else's insecurity, in somebody else's melancholy, then I am responsible for it, not him or her, not he or her. But if I am a shayr, if I'm like an animal, especially as we explained a shayr, the person who feels that he or she is an ox or a cow, just has so many cravings and addictions and instincts and yearnings and can't control themselves, now it is much easier for them and it's likely for them to be caught up in somebody else's sense of inadequacy, of mediocrity. So we have here the second source of damages, the pit, which generally represents the concept of passivity and paralysis. I have no proactivity in my life. I'm waiting for somebody to fall into me. And generate some action. You know they say there are three types of people. There are people who make things happen. And there are people who watch things happen. And there are people whom you have to tell that something happened. Even if you're a fine person, you're a good person. But if you do not develop the courage to be proactive in your life. If you're always passive. If you always remain for things happening to you. Ultimately it could become a cause for damage. Because when you're so passive, you can't take a stand, not against things in yourself which you should take a stand against, or against things outside of you in your environment which you should take a stand against. 
This is the second source prototype of a damager. Which leads us to the third, Mave, the human being. Now, as I mentioned in the Talmud, we have two opinions what Mave is. It's an argument between Rav and Shmuel. Shmuel, the Talmudic sage, says Mave Zahashen. Mave means when an animal actually eats, say, the plants or the fruits or the vegetables which belong to my neighbor. This I am responsible for to pay. This is shame. Shame means the tooth. It's basically the damage caused to another person by my animal, which she or he does for their enjoyment, for their gratification, for their satisfaction. That is the opinion of Shmuel. According to Rav, however, Shoir includes any damage created by my animal, whether it's Karen, Shane, or Regal, which means my my bull gores another animal, or my uh, bull or cow eats the food of another person, or another person, another person's property, or Regal tramples on the possessions of another person and damages it. And all of the branches which come from these categories. What is Mave then according to Rav? A human being. It's the damage inflicted directly by a human being. What does this represent psychologically? There is the damage caused by me defining myself as an animal. This is who I am, I can't change. There is the damage caused by me by defining myself as a pit. I'm worthless. I don't really count. I've been not garnished, I'm nothing. There is the damage caused by me being a human being. This is the sense of sophistication, of intelligentsia which sometimes can turn me into a damager. It's the feeling, I am an artist. I am a business tycoon. I'm a commander-in-chief. I am an aristocrat. I am a scientist. I'm a genius. I have very special talents. I have rare abilities. I have great things to accomplish. The regular rules don't apply to me. I can't be constrained by the laws designated to keep the herd in line. This, these are the damages that come from the fact that some people really feel that they're superior to other people. Ich bin a Feinschmecker. I am an aristocrat. I am royal. Ich bin von der besseren Menschen. I am just from the higher class of people. These are people who lose touch with their basic humanness, with their simplicity. They see themselves in another light and therefore they're allowed to do things that others are not allowed. The regular laws don't apply to them. One of the Hasidic masters, the Rebbe of Shmuel, the Maharash, once said, he said, you know, there are three things inevitable in life. If you drink, you become shikha, you become intoxicated. If you're wealthy, if you're a gvir, you become abyssal meshuga, a little meshuga. And if you learn Hasidis, if you learn the texts of Jewish spirituality, you become a little self-refined. I, the Rebbe said, you see that this is not always the case. There are people who drink and they don't become intoxicated. There are people who are wealthy and they're not Meshuga. There are people who learn Hasidis and they're not refined. So the Rebbe said it's because they're not, they don't have enough of it. They didn't drink enough. If they would drink more, they would become intoxicated. You see wealthy people who are not mashugi, he says they don't have enough money. If they would have some more money, they'll become a little mashugi. You see people who learn chassidus, they're not refined, they didn't learn enough. If you learn more Torah, then you become refined. There is a lovely, a powerful commentary by the Abarbanel. Don Yitzchok Abarbanel, the 15th century finance minister of Spain who was exiled with the Jews in 1492 and wrote a commentary on the Tanakh. And in his commentary to the book of Samuel, the book of Shmuel, he explains the difference between King Saul and King David. Shaul HaMelech and David HaMelech. Because one of the fascinating ideas in the Tanakh is Shaul HaMelech, King Saul, sinned. He was told to annihilate the nation of Amalek, the Amalekites. A nation which throughout history attempted constantly at every possible opportunity to annihilate the Jewish people, men, women, and children, unprovoked. 
the moment they left Egypt. They just left the concentration camp where they were for so many decades, slaughtered, annihilated, subjugated to slave labor, and they're now out in a desert. Unprovoked, Amalek came and declared war against the Jews. It was not a territorial dispute. It was not a political dispute. It was not a legal dispute. It was not a philosophical dispute. Amalek just likes the world to be Judenrein, devoid of Jews. And so King Saul was told to wipe out, to annihilate the Amalekites. And he failed to do so. And the kingship was taken away. The kingdom was taken away from him. King David, relative to his level, also sinned. Is the famous story of David and Bathsheba. And Abarbanel, as many other commentators, want to know why was Shoal not forgiven. The kingship was taken away from him. King David was forgiven. And one of the explanations given by the Abarbanel, although in a little bit of a different different context or different wording is, there are sins that are caused by weakness and there are sins that are caused by strength. Sins that stem from weakness you can forgive. Sins that stem from strength are much more difficult to forgive. The sin of David, of King David, came from human weakness, human temptation relative to the level and the status of King David, which is a different discussion. The king of Saul, the, king, the sin of Saul was a sin that stemmed from leadership, from ethical sensibilities and calculations. It came from strength. And this is always a much more difficult sin to deal with. Sometimes a person really thinks he is above the law. There's nobody beyond him. He always knows what is right. You know the man who told his wife, he said, I have never made a mistake in my life. The only mistake I made in my life was once back in 1979. What happened, she said. He said, then I thought I made a mistake. And that was the only mistake I have ever committed in my life. By the way, as I said, there is another opinion. What is Mava? Mava is Shane. It's the animal eating somebody else's fruits or vegetables. And Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi, the Alter Rebbe, the author of the Tanya, once said what that represents in one spiritual life is, Memachta bracha which means one makes a blessing to God, and yet he or she can eat like a glutton. We lose our mindfulness during eating. So in any case, we have here the third cause of damages, the third prototype of the damager, mava. The sin that comes from the fact that I feel, not that I'm an animal, and not that I'm worthless, but on the contrary, I'm a little better. I'm sophisticated. I'm the feinschmecker. And then there's the fourth prototype of damager, the hever, the fire. This is the person who says, look, I know it's wrong, but I can't control myself. I have this violent streak in me. Once you set me off, I just can't stop. I have this temper. I have this anger. I have these issues within me. I lose it. I'm sorry. I just don't have any self-control. Perhaps if you would have known how much I endured in my life, if you would have known about my childhood, my codependent mother, my alcoholic father, my addicted uncle, my aunts with, her, with their issues, my grandparents, my siblings, and you would understand that I have all of these issues raging within my psyche and once they get ticked off, they are like a traveling fire. There's nothing I can do. It's a bad temper and it's just impossible to control. It spreads and grows like fire with a fire of its own. Once it gets ignited, there's just no way of controlling it. It travels and it destroys everything in its path. I feel helpless in its presence. Am I not excused by this? These fires are unpredictable. They're just difficult to combat. This is the fourth prototype of when a human being becomes a damager. These four have many offspring, many children. 
But they are the fathers. They are the Avais Nezikin. The ox, the pit, the human, and the fire. The ox is the excuse, this is who I am, this is what God made me. The pit is the excuse, I'm worthless, I don't amount to anything. The mava, the human, is the excuse, I'm special. I'm different, I'm unique. I'm a free spirit. I may be a bohemian. And the fourth is the fire. I lost it. I'm sorry. I just lose it. Comes the Torah. Comes the mission in the beginning of Abakama. And tells us you have to always remember that these are Arba Ovois Nizikin. They are four prototypes of damagers. They are Nizikin. Shmirasan Alecha, you are responsible to guard them because Darkan Lahazik, as the Mishnah says we read earlier. All of these are prone to become sources of pain, of suffering, of dysfunction to yourself, to your loved ones, to your spouse, to your children, to your friends, to your colleagues, to your employers, employees, to your environment, and thus to the world. Let's take number one. Sure, I'm an ox. I'm an animal. You want me to repress myself? You want me to fake it? You want me to be that who I am not? You want me to build castles in the air? Comes Judaism and teaches us it's true. There is an aspect of you which is a sure. We all have a nefesh abahamis, as the book of Tanya puts it in the first chapter and later on. We have a beastly consciousness within ourselves. We each have within ourselves a consciousness, and this consciousness is focused, its exclusive quest is self-preservation, self-gratification. It's true, I have tremendous amounts of cravings and instincts. Some of them are not always moral and ethical. But the reason you were given this consciousness was not to become defined by it, but rather to define it. You were given cravings in order to prevail over them, to confront them, to subdue them, to educate them, and sometimes even to transform them. The point is, I have an animal within me, but I ought to define the animal within me, not allow the animal to define me. Which means, the animal defining me means that I am defined by the animal in me in the sense that it becomes me. This is who I am. From the Jewish perspective, you have an animal within you and you ought to define it. You put it in context. Don't let it put you in context. Let the human in you, let the godliness within you, let the idealism within you, let the neshama within you, the nefesh the divine consciousness, define the animal. Let the divine soul give meaning to the animal soul. And what is the meaning it confers upon it? The meaning is that we were created to create a home for goodness in this world. We were created to turn this world into a place that's worthy of the divine presence. We were created to revolutionize the landscape of our body, our psyche, and of the world. And make it a place that is permeated with kindness, godliness, and holiness. So when I see the lowliness, when I see the animal within me, I must put it into my context, not have it put me into its context. It should not turn me into an animal, but rather I should tell myself I have an animal. And that allows me to fulfill the vision of creation, which is to refine my animal, to challenge my animal, to subdue my animal, to confront my animal. Don't worship your animal. Don't become defined exclusively by your animal. Give it context. It's waiting for you to tell it what it means. So the next time you have a craving, tell your craving what it means. Let your craving not tell you what it means. You tell your craving. Do you know the meaning of this craving? This, the meaning of this craving is a challenge set for me to deal with, to confront, to elevate, to sublimate. Rabbi Yonis and has a lovely, very humorous and cute answer to the question of Toisvis in the beginning of Babakama. Arba Avais Nezikin. There are four prototypes of damagers. And Toisvis asks, why doesn't it say Arba Avais Nezikin Hain? 
These are the four types of damages, as the Mishnah does in so many other places. For example, in Tractate Rosh Hashanah, Arba Rosh Hashanah Hain, there are four Rosh Hashanahs in the calendar. Or Arba Shomrin Hain, there are four custodians, four types of guardians. Here, Arba Avis Nezikin, it doesn't say Arba Avis Nezikin Hain. So there are different answers given. There's the answer that some cipher brings from the Asara Mamoris. There's what Taisvis discusses, Rebbeinus and Apeshitz says this, the Talmud says in Tractate Psachim, page 112b, Kofiud Bezamet Bez, Nizha de Teira Hain Hain, the mantra one ought to whisper to a damaging bull that he should cease to damage is Hain Hain. That's like the silent lachash, the mantra that when the bull hears hein hein, it might stop damaging. So the Bionis and Abishad says the Mishnah can't say, Arba Ovis Nezikin Hain Ashoir because the Mishnah is addressing a bull which damages. And the moment the bull will hear the word hein, the bull is going to run away and we won't have any more a bull that damages. So the Mishnah can't say the word hein. So true, we have a bull which is da- damages. But the person can declare hein hein challenge the bull within us. Acknowledge it, not repress it. There is a difference between repressing yourself, denying who you are, and challenging who you are. It's an important distinction that often goes unnoticed in the modern world. Just because I challenge the animal in me doesn't mean I am repressing it. Repression means you deny that there is a part in yourself. You're uncomfortable with the part. You're miserable with that part. And you go a long way to make believe it doesn't exist. And then it comes back to haunt you and can create an unhealthy, dishonest, neurotic human being. What the Torah, what Judaism suggests, and it's a major theme in many books of Musr, of ethics and Kabbalah and Hasidism, for example, the Tanya's, acknowledge it, understand it, even become a little comfortable with it in the sense that you understand that this is an indispensable part of who you are. But realize you ought to put it in context, not let it put you in its context. Boy, the pit. Fundamental idea of Judaism is birth is God saying you matter and that you are an indispensable note to the divine symphony of history. And therefore the sense that I am worthless, I am meaningless, runs contrary to the very vision of existence from the Jewish Torah point of view. Thus the person ought to wake up each morning and remember that I have a mission, I have a soul, I have a consciousness, my humanness, my soulfulness, my entity is not only worthwhile, but it has something to contribute to the past, present and future of history which no other human being can or will contribute. And then there is the third element of Mava, when the person begins taking himself or herself too seriously, when we lose our sense of humor about who we are. And here we come to the famous Talmud in Tractate Yuma, page 22b, Yuma Davchav Bezamet Bez, which you have here also in your curriculum. Rabbi Yehuda says in the name of Shmuel, Mipnei ma loy nimshecha malchus beis shol, mipnei sheloy hoya shum doifi. Which means, why did the kingdom of Saul not endure? Because no reproach rested on him. As Rashi says, there was no taint in his lineage and therefore his descendants would grow haughty and arrogant over Israel. One should not appoint an administrator, a leader over a community, unless he carries a basket of vermin on his back, so that if he becomes arrogant, one can tell him, turn around. Look what's hanging on your back. This is a very insightful observation. One of the worst things for a leader is, that there's no vermin on his back. There's no box of dead insects hanging down his back so that people can tell him, turn around and look what's in back of you. This was the problem, according to the Talmud, of Shoal versus David. When King David got up to give his speech, when David HaMelech got up to speak, as Rashi explains, what do you think happened? 
If somebody in the back didn't like what he said, you know what he said? Oh, David. It's interesting to know, this David, he had a grandmother. Her name was Ruth. Was she Jewish? Ah, she came from the Moabites. Doesn't the Torah say that we shouldn't accept a Moabite into the community of God? In fact, David's legitimate Jewish lineage was challenged by this argument that his grandmother came from the Moabite nation, Rus. And the Bible says, An Ammonite and a Moabite can't be taken into the community of God. Of course, the Talmud disputes it and says, Which means only male Moabites could not come in. But female Moabites can come into the community of God. Today, by the way, this doesn't apply because Sancheriv, the Assyrian king, confused all of the nations. And even somebody who comes from Moab and Jordan, Petra, is not a real Moabite. So these laws don't apply today. They're not contemporary. But in King David's life, they applied very much. It was before the Assyrian king exiled Many nations displaced them, including the ten tribes of Israel. When Moses, Moshe Rabbeinu, got up to give a speech, if somebody didn't like what he said, he asked one question. Which yeshiva did Moshe learn in? Where did he get his education? Where was he ordained? Where did he get his smicha? Where did he learn? He learned in Slabotka. He learned in Mir. He learned in Brisk. He learned in Grodna. Where did he learn? In Baranovich. In which yeshiva did he learn? In Valozhin, in Preshburg. Ah, he was raised in pa- Pharaoh's palace. He was raised by the daughter of Pharaoh. That's it. You don't need more to delegitimize a person. And this is true throughout Jewish history. It's one of the very well-known Jewish strengths or weaknesses. A person gets up to speak, to communicate, to inspire, to teach, to rebuke. Immediately we can discover what his father used to do as a child, what his mother did as a youngster, what he did as a youngster, where he was before the war, in the middle of the war, after the war, and you just delegitimize the person. So the Talmud says, you know what King Saul's problem was? He was perfect. He came from an impeccable, flawless family. His uncle wasn't a gambler. His mother wasn't a drinker. His father wasn't a thief. He himself didn't have dark demons and skeletons in the closet. He was a great guy. And the danger is that such people or their families can start believing in themselves too much. King David never had that problem. David HaMelech never had that problem and that's why he endured as a leader. This is the antidote to Mava. The moment you start believing that you're a mini-god, the moment you start believing you're too superior, you can't be vulnerable, you can't connect with your humanness, you have a serious issue, you can become a source of damages. And it's interesting. What's the word used in the Mishnah for a human being? Mave. Why not Adam? So the Talmud says on the Avgimel on page 3, Mave comes from the word in the verse, Im boyu, which is a form of prayer, of seeking, of asking. The human being is defined as somebody who seeks, who asks, who requests, who prays. But why was this term used? Perhaps it was used to explain that a real human being is somebody who never stops seeking, searching, praying, asking, realizing that as great as I might be, the horizons are still infinite. And finally, the fourth, fire. The human being says, I can't control myself. I have a fire burning and it just goes and travels, it flares up and it begins to destroy things. I'm sorry, but I can't control myself. But in the Jewish imagination, the human being, every human being, every responsible human being has indeed sometimes urges that are very, very powerful. An anger or temper, an anger or temper which is extremely ferocious. And yet, with your mind and your willpower, in the famous expression of the Zohar quoted in Tanya, Chapter 12, your mind can rule the heart. Your behavior is a product of your choice, not of your instincts. So when the person back to the beginning comes to the bar, I have an uncontrollable rage. I'm sorry, I'll go to therapy. I go to therapy, I went to therapy, and now I'm not embarrassed anymore. Sometimes it's good to be embarrassed. Blushing is not always that terrible. 
Blushing doesn't mean I am dishonest with myself, I am repressing myself. Sometimes blushing is very positive. Blushing, feeling shame, and knowing that I can do something about it. Have a good night. Thank you.